Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Well, hello, everybody, and happy 2022 to you. Happy New Year. I am also celebrating this week three years of all things. I started this back in January of 2019, and here we are three years later, and this is episode number 75. And I just want to thank you guys for joining me in this conversation. My listeners are awesome. You guys have been so great to engage in ratings and reviews, providing me with feedback in comments and emails and texts. And I just really value and appreciate the opportunity to just play a role in your life, to be partners with you as we apply a Christian lens to what's going on in our lives. So as I was preparing for this first episode of 2022, I kind of wanted to take a look back on 2021. That was what I thought I was going to make this episode about. I wanted to look at the biggest news stories from last year. Well, here's what happened when I did that. It became really obvious really quick how contentious those news stories were. I mean, I felt my blood pressure rising as I started to think about which angle I would address some of those biggest news stories from. Things like, of course, the January 6th insurrection last year, um, COVID, the pandemic, and of course, the COVID vaccine, um, the Derek Chauvin verdict, um, other ongoing debates in broader society, things like CRT. Now, of course, those aren't the only news stories to make headlines. We've There are plenty of other really important news stories from last year. But what I noticed is that the biggest headlines in the United States from last year weren't just news stories, but they were things that we as a nation are really divided over. And that really is a story in and of itself, how different populations in the United States see these stories from very different perspectives. And I feel like the division is almost palpable. We are really polarized. So why is that? Where does this polarization come from? Why are our feelings so strong here? Why does it feel like we cannot have a reasonable debate about these topics? You know, my feeling was just doing a podcast episode on just one of those topics (laughs) made me feel really nervous because I have spoken about politics and CRT, race, COVID, the vaccine on this podcast before. And I know the tremendous backlash that can come when people disagree with you. And I also know the great support that you can feel when people do agree with you. So why is all of this so emotional? And that's really where I decided to go ahead and focus. That's where I decided to do a deep dive. What we're looking at then in this first episode of 2022 in All Things is this. Why are we so polarized in our politics in the United States? And how can we be more intentional to move toward one another, toward civil conversation and engagement, and away from the divisiveness and the explosiveness that marks our political discourse right now? So the findings of my deep dive as I went into the question of why were really surprising Let me tell you what my hypothesis was. My bet was that, well, we all live in our own echo chambers. We are all... You know, siloed in our political camps, and we're just repeating the same news back to each other. What needs to happen is we need to be exposed to other viewpoints. That's what would solve things. You know, we're rational thinking people. If we could just collect various opinions, various sides of the story, more well rounded information, that would solve the division and the volatility in our discourse. Well, let me tell you, I was wrong. It is not, in fact, the echo chamber. Now, the echo chamber 
certainly convenient and it's a simple explanation, but the answer to our current division really goes much deeper. And that's what we're going to talk about. So let me start by telling you a study conducted by sociologists at Duke University showed that exposure to other viewpoints actually made people more rooted in their original opinion. I will link the study in my show notes, but essentially what happened is these researchers inserted tweets into the timeline of Republicans by Democrats and vice versa. They inserted tweets by Democrats into the timelines of Republicans. And so over time, they um, injected the opposing viewpoint into the feeds of the research participants. And what they found was very surprising. They found that each side's commitment to their own original views grew stronger. Their commitment to their views did not change. It did not soften. They didn't sort of take a step back and go, okay, I'm, I'm considering these other things. They actually dug their feet deeper into their own political camp. So, you know, again, we think we're rational beings that we just need more data, but the participants in this study felt more strongly about their original views, not less. Okay, so hold on to those findings from that study. There is more to the whole picture that I want to paint here. These researchers also found that 73% of tweets about politics are generated by 6% of Twitter users. 73% of political tweets are made by only 6% of Twitter users. That means that our social media discourse, the place where, by the way, we now call our public square, we consider it our public square, it's being shaped by a very small percentage of social media users. We think it's the place that we go to exchange ideas, but evidently only 6% of people are actually exchanging ideas on Twitter. And not only that, but what is most shared and reshared comes from an extreme perspective, not a moderate perspective. So let me explain why that is. Now, you all know media is big business, and so is social media. So news outlets are looking to publish what sells. They want to get the most clicks and the most shares so that people spend the most time on their site or on their channel. And you all know the more extreme a headline is or the more shocking it is, it's going to get more clicks. So that's what gets promoted the most by news outlets. So in this way, journalists and news organizations are not only observers and reporters of the news, but they are also also actors in the news because they decide what is the bigger story and therefore they decide what is going to influence or impact our communities. So more alarming news, more extreme perspectives get more airtime because viewers and social media users engage with those things more and that makes them more profitable for news outlets. So the sociologists found it's not just extreme news that's very attractive It's also news that people can identify with, news that people feel like speaks for them. So you see a news story, you see a headline, and you go, oh, that really identifies what I'm talking about. That's me. I feel seen. I feel heard by this particular headline. So then you copy the link and you share it. You like and you share. And then the content goes viral because it carries an agenda that many consumers feel like um, aligns with them. Not only does it align with them, but they want to share with all of their followers that it aligns with them. They want to be seen as aligning with this particular headline or this particular story. 
So this being seen piece is kind of central to the whole equation. Social media is where we create and curate and share our identities. So we share what we identify with. The stories and the headlines that we feel describe who we are is what we like and what we share. It's what we put out there. So let's pause and just kind of put all of this together. So to begin with, it's the more extreme stories and the clickbait headlines that are originally shared by news sources. Then you only have 6% of users sharing and resharing political headlines. So what we have then is social media that is heavily weighted with extreme and clickbaity stories. So people with moderate viewpoints are not really participating People with moderate viewpoints are staying silent. They are not the ones who are liking and sharing. They're the ones who are sharing pictures of their kids and their puppies, but not really politics, if they're even on social media at all. And I'm guessing that's a lot of my listeners. I know so many of you are like, you know what? I'm not playing. I will not participate in anything political or even you know, talk about current events online. I'm just going to share pictures of my kids or what's going on in my life. So moderate people are not really participating. So what we see online is an extreme perspective, and it's usually a harsh perspective, and it's usually kind of an ugly perspective. And we consume it. We take it in. Even if you're not posting, you're consuming. And there's usually, it's it's a subconscious, um, a passive process. And we tend to think, well, here are all these headlines that I'm seeing. Here's this perspective that's being repeated. And we think everyone on that side thinks this way. We sort of think like, this is the sum total of the viewpoints out there. Everyone is crazy and off the right or the left deep end. We don't tend to recognize that there's actually a huge spectrum and most people are in fact very moderate because moderate people stay silent. And here's why. Here's why you and me and others who are moderate tend to go unseen online. It's because people who are moderate have a lot to lose. These are the people who usually have a lot of status in real life. You have real community. You have friends, family, a business, a church. You have um, relationships that very are very likely to suffer if you are outspoken online. And so you decide, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to rock the boat. But those who don't have high stakes in real life, those who don't have a ton of relationships in person, they have a lot to gain online. They will gain status in their online communities by sharing headlines that are outrageous, that get liked and that get shared. So somebody who doesn't have a lot to lose in real life is emboldened by a headline, clicks it, identifies with it, and then wants to share it because it says something about who they are. It conveys a message that they want to share in crafting their image online. But moderate or measured views or news doesn't really get clicks because people with moderate and measured views don't generally share the content that they're reading and agreeing with because they have too much to lose in real life. So they keep quiet about their politics online. So it's just this cycle. The vast majority of what we see online is extreme, making us think that everyone's views are extreme, when in reality, most of us are very moderate, but we're not speaking up. So circling back to the first study that I referenced at the beginning of this episode, it's not true. My hypothesis was not true. It's not true that we just need to remove ourselves from our echo chambers and be exposed to more and varied views. When that happened in that particular study, people became more entrenched in their original views. So it blew up the echo chamber um, idea that I had. It didn't help their views become more moderate. It made them stronger stronger. Here is why. Social media is not actually a useful tool 
for exploring ideas. I know you probably already know that. You've probably already said it. Social media is really not an effective place to share ideas. Social media is a venue for creating, curating, and sharing your identity. It's not the marketplace of ideas. It's the marketplace of identities. So the Duke sociologist who conducted the um, aforementioned study, Chris Bale, and I'm going to link a lot of his um, resources in my show notes. He says, social media is a competition of identities, not of ideas. Because as humans, we do care what other people think about us, don't we? We want to be affirmed. We want to know that we're doing life right. We want to make our communities proud. So the more you preach to your own choir... The more you're sort of shouting to your own community, the more positive feedback you're going to get. The more you share articles and views that your community resonates with, the more viral you are going to become and the more you will gain. When you preach to your own choir, you get a lot of affirmation. So exacerbating this whole reality is that we are no longer rooted in physical communities. We are a transient people. We are more rooted in our online communities oftentimes. So we used to derive our identities from our family name, our hometown, our work in our local community, but we are now scattered across the nation, scattered across the globe in our modern, industrial, and now online age. So we tend to look for identity and affirmation and belonging online. So the lonelier you are in real life, the more isolated you are in real life, the more you're likely to post and cultivate online so that you can get that positive reinforcement that you're looking for. And remember, before the COVID pandemic, we were in the midst of what um, health workers called a loneliness pandemic. For years prior to COVID, there has been a very real concern amongst both medical and mental health workers that people in the United States are more isolated than ever. And of course, since the pandemic, it's worse. In fact, studies show that in 2020 alone, the average American traded 300 hours of in-person time with friends, church members, and neighbors for 300 hours of social media, TV, and internet reading. It's no wonder we're so divided. We're home alone online rather than gathering in groups and being together. So you take a lonely population add a politically charged pandemic that keeps people home and you have a recipe for people to cultivate their identities and their belonging online, or at least primarily cultivating it there. And the articles and the resources they share online promote their own identity. And they're largely extreme because that's what gets clicks. That's what gets revenue. That's what goes viral. Viral. So it's not that we're not exposed to other ideas. It's that we are unwilling to wrestle with new ideas because it's too risky. So hear me on this, and I know you can relate. If we were to reveal to our own community, our own tribe, our own party, that we are considering a view outside of our agreed upon ideals, we are likely to be rebuffed or even be canceled. You know this is true because of your own experience or because you've seen somebody else's experience that you've watched online. If you go outside the party line, you will suffer. People are afraid to engage online with new ideas to sort of test things out because they know they're going to get ostracized by their own party. They are afraid of the loss that will come. So for example, um, and I will link an article about this as well. Most recently, for those who identify as liberal or progressive, 
When they have questioned or spoken against the school shutdowns during COVID, they have been canceled. They've been called racist, white supremacist, or even uncaring for the marginalized. Same with those who identify as liberal or progressive when they've questioned or spoken out against the defund the police movement. Same thing, called racist, called white supremacist, whatever. Now, on the other side, um, for example, when those who are in the conservative camp have advocated for something like immigration reform, you know, more open borders, or the welcoming of refugees, they are called un-American. They are called reckless, irresponsible. Or when those who are in the conservative camp advocate for the reformation of our justice system and decry police brutality and the glaring inequalities in our prison system, they are dismissed as woke social justice warriors who've given their souls over to CRT. So when you question your party or your community, your set of ideals, you lose membership in that party or that community. It's why so many people, myself included, say we feel politically homeless. We can't get comfortable on either side. We can't get comfortable on the left or on the right. And the voices coming from each side are so loud that it feels like there are just no moderates out there. Interestingly, researchers say there is actually a lot of overlap when it comes to policy. So in real life, when we talk about policy, you know, maybe a diverse group of people gathers around the table and we're talking about abortion, immigration, taxes, education, there's actually a ton of agreement and overlap between both parties when we talk about policy. When it comes to policy, there is a lot of across-the-aisle agreement. But when it comes to advocating for that policy at the expense of your political identity, we tend to choose identity over policy. So you can see this with just a couple examples. Like, So amongst Republicans who are opposed to Trump or feel like he's responsible for January 6th or that his stories about the stolen election are lies, those Republicans have suffered greatly. They have been rejected from the party. They have been demoted. You can see this amongst the Democrats with abortion policy. There used to be Democrats for life. Joe Biden used to be pro-life. Hillary Clinton used to favor abortion policy that made abortion, quote, safe, legal, and rare. But now if you're going to be a Democrat in good standing, you have to fight without wavering for abortion on demand for any reason and at any time. And now they're fighting for abortion to be available by medicine without the involvement of a medical professional so that women can do their own abortions at home to lobby for anything less inside the Democratic party will get you demoted. So on both sides of the aisle, there is evidence that we are more committed to our identity than to our ideas. Now, this has not always been the case. Um, Historians and sociologists will tell you that in the early and mid-1900s, there was quite a bit of diversity in both political parties. Both political parties showed a diversity of racial, economic, religious affiliations. Both parties kind of looked like each other demographically. But starting in the 50s, 60s, 70s, really post-civil rights era, historians and sociologists point out that we began to sort our into our two parties. So now, in general, the Democrats are known as the liberal, urban, racially diverse party of the nuns. Nuns meaning people with no religious affiliation. And Republicans, in general, are known as the conservative, the more rural, the white party of evangelicals. Now, I know that's a huge generalization, but you know it's true. This is how we think of both parties, and the numbers back it up. 
Whereas these various identities used to be all mixed together in both parties, they are now largely siloed. They're now largely separate. So when you talk about your identity in any one of these areas, you're talking about your identity in the other areas too. So like you're not just a rural conservative, you're also a white evangelical, or you're not just an urban atheist, you're also a liberal. Our identities are all kind of like stacked up one on top of the other. And our politicians and our political movements know this and they exploit this. They know that our identities are precious to us. They know this is who we are. They know our identities are lumped together like this. So it's not, you know, they'll, they'll say it's not just that conservatism is under threat or liberalism is under threat. They'll say it's your way of life that's under threat. It's your way of life as a white evangelical that's under threat, or it's your way of life as a racial minority in an urban setting that is under threat. Rather than saying, you know, here's where the parties disagree, or um, rather than taking things apart, they they will go after our identity. Politicians know that to win... They have to preach to their own choirs. They must rally their own bases. And in order to do that, they incite fear by claiming that our very identities are under threat by the other side. Our way of life is in danger because the other side wants to take away some of the freedoms on our own side. You see it coming from both sides. Trump is an expert at it and has been especially good at inciting fear in his base so that his base is increasingly devoted to him and to his party. I mean, we saw this with our own eyes happen in 2020 and 2021. We saw fear grow on both sides and people retreat further and further into their own corners of their own political parties because it, to them, it felt safest there. And if we're not very careful in how we ingest news and headlines and viral articles, we can begin to think that if my party loses, then my identity loses. We can begin to think even subconsciously, I have to fight for my party. Otherwise, my very identity is under threat. My way of life, my way of living, my people are going to be threatened and harmed if I don't fight for my party. In fact, 20% of Americans now feel so threatened that they say it's okay to inflict violence on the other party. 20%, one in five Americans is willing to inflict violence on somebody from the other party. Okay, so where are we so far in this episode? The very nature and design of media and social media is to generate revenue and ratings, okay? And the way this happens is by sharing content that will go viral. The content that goes viral the best is that which is both extreme and that which people identify with. And those sharing content online tend to share more extreme content, preaching to their own choirs, thereby gaining more status online. But those who are moderate are not sharing content, but of course they are seeing it. So it feels like the world is more polarized than it actually is. So making things worse, of course, here now in the 2020s, we are largely sorted into these political camps where our identities are stacked. So when we see articles and headlines from the other side, it feels as if our side is under attack or being threatened, that our identity is being marginalized, that we've got to dig deeper in and make sure we're fighting for our own. So basically, social media is not a great place as of now for sharing ideas. It's rather a place for curating and affirming your identity. 
So this deep polarization that we're feeling, it is real and it's also unreal. So like in a real sense, we are sorted more than ever. Our political identities are are aligned with our racial and our religious identities, our socioeconomic, where we live. We are sorted more than ever. But the division is also largely unreal. You know, there's an appearance of it, but it's not really true. When it comes to policies and ideas, there is overlap because most of us are moderate, but we don't see each other because the loudest voices online are the extreme voices. And we tend to run back to our camps where it feels safest because we don't want to lose relationships or rock the boat in our own community. Man, I know this feels heavy. I feel I feel the heaviness in it all. So what can we do? I don't know about you guys, but this does really concern me. I hate this feeling like I'm always walking on eggshells. I hate this feeling like everything is so contentious and I'm going to offend and things are going to blow up at any minute. So what can we do about it? Well, I'm going to suggest four things. Two are very practical and two are more spiritual philosophical. And then I'm going to close out this episode. So practically speaking, as moderates, I think maybe we should be speaking up more. I know it's scary. Trust me. I'm putting myself out there, even in this episode with 75 times now on 75 episodes, I put myself out there. It is scary. I know there are relationships at stake when you do that, but why have we relegated what is now our public square to those who are extreme? Why is that okay with us? If we speak up, then we can hear each other and see each other. Then we know we're not alone. As we share moderate ideas and headlines and articles, then we give voice to a moderate platform. So one way, I think, to engage in civics responsibly right now would be to engage as a moderate, to share your voice. Um, and, And again, I know it's risky. It takes courage. It takes resolve. But obviously, I do think it's worth it to put a different voice out there. Okay, another really practical thing that you and I can do is to know and to remember that what we're seeing online really is an extreme perspective for the most part. When we see a headline from the left or the right, let's not assume that that's how everyone who leans to the left or to the right feels. What we're actually seeing is a very small sampling from the extreme. Remember, 73% of tweets about politics are generated by 6% of the users. So we need to do hard work in our minds as we process, you know, not just passively ingest what we're seeing online but proactively process it, that this is not everyone out there. I I am definitely guilty of this. I will lump people together all day long and assume, you know, that, that if there's an extreme view out there, that's how everyone thinks over in that group. But that's just not true. There's a huge spectrum. What we see online tends to be extreme. So those are the two practical ideas. Engage as a moderate and think carefully about what you're ingesting, realizing that not everyone thinks that way. Okay, now the more the two more philosophical slash spiritual ideas that I want to put forth. The first is that as Christians, we must pursue what journalist Marvin Olasky calls biblical objectivity. So he says, biblical objectivity shows us how humans are both terrible and yet wonderful, created in God's image and worth dying for. So biblical objectivity, it's Christ oriented. It holds together the crucifixion and the resurrection. So meaning we know man is fallen. We know man is sinful and that life has death and it's painful. All of that is real, but we also acknowledge God is good. He has goodness, truth, beauty, and victory. We know he is sovereign and that all of history is progressing toward the new heaven and the new earth. 
So when we practice biblical objectivity, you know, we're rooted in the word of God. We are rooted in the gospel and we can be committed to causes that the Bible is clear on and quiet with the issues that the Bible is quiet on. The Bible gives us wisdom and direction for our public engagement. So an example would be the Bible's clear on the value of life, right? So therefore, a biblically objective Christian is going to be ardently anti-abortion. But the Bible is also clear about loving and serving the poor. So the biblically objective Christian will also seek to serve the impoverished mother, the marginalized mother who might be seeking an abortion. It's both. Biblical objectivity makes us leave our political identities. It requires nuance and intentionality. It makes us sort of rise above, transcend political identities, not for the sake of being somewhere in the mushy middle, not for the sake of somehow being better than the two camps, but because neither camp can fully speak for those who are fully committed to the word of God, neither the right nor the left really satisfied. Okay, and finally, lastly, and what I think is probably most importantly, but perhaps the most difficult for our human flesh in this current cultural moment, we must be identified with Jesus Christ above all. Our identity as Christians must be our most cherished and valuable identity. Any identity outside of Christ is inherently fragile because it's dependent on the mood of the age. It's dependent on what's fashionable, on who's in power, which party has more influence at a given time. But if we are primarily identified with Christ, then we will not feel the need to cling to or protect our political affiliations. If we cling to Christ first, then as moderates, we can speak out and we can lose likes and we can lose followers because that's not our identity. That's not our worth. We can uphold the goodness on both sides and denounce the darkness on both sides because we don't care if we lose our reputation. We have died and we are hidden in Christ and it's okay if we're seen as too liberal or too conservative. So I'm going to sum up this thought with a tweet that was posted by the AND campaign today. I happen to love the AND campaign. I'm going to link their website in my show notes as well. But here's their tweet. These are their words, which I thought were great and um, just sums it up. Why do some Christians act like you insulted their mother when you critique their political party? Why will we defend our party before we'll contend for the faith? We've allowed our political affiliation to become religious in nature. Our identity is in our ideological tribe. This is also why people think they're contending for the faith when they're merely fighting a partisan or ideological battle. So friends, as we move into this new year and we carry with us the division and the polarization of years past, let's commit to remembering what's true about online voices. Let's think about sharing our own moderate voices more often. Let's commit to the gospel imperatives of biblical objectivity, which cannot be found in any party. And most of all, let's identify ourselves with Christ way above and beyond any other affiliation. Thank you for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now.